So this, this uh, actual lesson is going to relate to a lot of the preaching from earlier today, distinguishing what that which comes from God and that which comes merely from man. And um, once we get into why we have creeds and confessions and the importance of those creeds and confessions. So I, you know, the last handout, uh, I put the first two questions, this one I put the last three regarding our membership vows and how we want to remember these. Really, I'll only probably touch on number five. So you're responsible for the other two. Quick history on Westminster Assembly. Again, I'm not, I'm not the scholar. I don't know all about the ins and outs. I know like general things about the, uh, the Westminster Assembly. A long Parliament called an assembly to restructure the Church of England or reform the Church of England before and during the first English Civil War uh, during the reign of Charles I. This was called the Westminster Assembly and it consisted of 204 men, all of whom were what they called Puritans. As I've said before, I limit Puritans to a time frame and it was a movement. It was a movement within the Church of England. So when you hear people call Puritans outside the Church of England, I think historically that's inaccurate. So the Puritan era would have been beginning with Elizabeth's reign, 1558, until the great ejection of 1662, when the Puritans were ejected from the Church of England by Charles II. So the Puritans consisted of men who were trying to reform within the Church of England, and once they were ejected, my argument is, is there's no longer a Puritan movement. It's Presbyterian, Episcopalian, and Congregationalist. And something to take note is that no two Puritans were the same in all points of theology. You want to think of that as we move forward in this lesson. Keep that in mind. Um, they were varied in their biblical convictions regarding church government, regarding the Christian's exper experience, uh, spiritual experience, how much reform is needed. That was a question as well. Not everyone who was a Puritan believed in the same amount of reform. Right? Some were more extreme than others. Uh, just like some would remain later on in the Church of England while others were ejected, right? As Americans, I would argue as reforming Christians, uh, we would have sharp disagreements with the Puritans, right? Regarding the role of civil magistrates in the lives of civilians. Uh, in America, we value privacy. We value voluntary association, uh, meaning no one is allowed to force you to go to church, right? Religion is not forced upon anyone, uh, unless you're my children. You're forced to go to church if you live in my house. It doesn't matter what age you are. Uh, so Parliament appoints the Assembly to revise the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles. Now, the issue was mainly about vestments, but when you read the Book of Common Prayer... And the 39 articles, it's not that they weren't reformed in doctrine. There's not much in it that you would disagree with. Until you get maybe the calendar with the table of lessons. What, what they wanted, what the Puritans wanted was more liberty in what the minister preaches on whatever week. And the liberty to actually go through an entire book of the Bible without being tied down to a calendar. Yet I would argue, you know, Presbyterians, we're, we're actually, when it comes to the church, and if you want to have a scale... High church, low church, and when I say high church and low church, I'm talking about an emphasis 
on the Lord's Day, emphasis on membership, an emphasis on uh, the, cl- the clergy um, having a role or having a role of authority, uh, a significant role of authority. I believe Presbyterians are still closer to Anglicans than they are to Congregationalism. Um, when you look at where we are as far as order and the importance of Sunday gathering being emphasized um, and throughout uh, our history, uh, seeing, you know, even in America, we didn't like a lot of the things that were being allowed during the Great Awakening. Many of Presbyterians opposed to it. So again, the Puritans, spectrum of convictions from those who were conformists, who would later stay in the Church of England, to nonconformists and independent ministers who believed in congregational autonomy, meaning congregations rule their own. We're not interconnected with other churches, right? We make all the decisions on our own and the congregation votes. This is how it's going to go. While you notice in the Presbyterian Church, the pastor can't do much of anything without one referring to our book of church order, uh, speaking with the session, or seeking the wise counsel of the presbytery, right? Um, And in more serious matters, the presbytery can get involved in our church life, right? We're interconnected. We're not solo. You know, we don't fly solo. That would support my argument that we are closer to an interconnected church the way the Anglicans are, minus the bishop hierarchy. And the point of uh, the assembly was not, they weren't trying to get rid of documents, right? In in evangelicalism today, there's this um, frame of mind that thinks, well, you know, we don't need any document but the Bible. But that's not what the reformers did at all. Uh, I've said this before, you see the pattern of every church established. You're talking the early church, what did they do? They they wrote creeds. Um, Martin Luther, they went right to the uh, Book of Concord. He wrote his larger and shorter catechism. You know, they were teaching. And the, the minister's job is to teach. And what did they do immediately? It was teaching by writing these documents. Uh, these were 204 pastors, right, who got together and said the impo- uh, spoke of the importance of teaching the church, not just the local congregation, but the entire Catholic universal church. So they weren't trying to get rid of documents or get rid of order. It was about a new order, right? A reformed order, new and more reformed documents, which was in part built on the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, The documents that came out of the Westminster Assembly was the Directory of Public Worship, the form of church government. Both of those we have in our Book of Church Order. As I've said, they're they're revised. We don't revise the substance. We revise some of the wording and maybe some of the processes to try to make it a little easier, right, for both the minister and and the lay people. Um, Larger and shorter catechisms, uh, the confession of faith. It says here, I I have it written down. I got two dates, 1647, and then an earlier date for 1646. It was between 1646 and 1647, we wrote up the Confession of Faith. There have been minor amendments throughout its history, and the real major one would be the American revisions beginning in 1788. As I've mentioned before, chapter 23 and the role of 
the government, the civil government. They believed in a more, um, a more of a role in the civil government in regard to personal religion than we would allow t- today as not only you know, Americans, even as Christians, I believe as reformed Christians, we shouldn't allow uh, governing authorities to impose right, um, religion, especially given the state of our society. We're more and more secular. We're, there's more unbelief. Rather, in light of our constitution, of our nation, and the Declaration of Independence, we believe that it is the government's duty to protect all citizens, believer and unbeliever alike. So I guess we, instead of New England Puritanism, we followed Roger Williams in that, in that sense. So the OPC did not adopt the revisions to the confession made by the PCUSA. They tried to add new chapters to the Confession of Faith on the Holy Spirit, the love of God, and missions, and a declaratory statement softening the confession's position on election. Now, the PCUSA was becoming more evangelical, broadly evangelical, and so they were admitting ministers who were very broad in their doctrine. And that led to liberalism in the PCUSA. They believed the document said nothing of the Holy Spirit, right, and the love of God and missions. Um, but they ignored the fact that, one, we see the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the confessions and catechisms because the Spirit points us to Christ, right? That is the Spirit's role in our lives. Uh, We don't need another chapter on the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit underlies the whole entire thing. The the conservatives in the PCUSA opposed it in 1903 is because that's, it's assumed in the documents. We don't need a separate chapter on it. I wonder what they would have wanted to insert well, yes, the love of God and missions had much to do with not just preaching the gospel, but also caring for the needy of those nations that we were um, preaching the gospel to, which is, which is assumed. We don't need a separate chapter on it, right? It's assumed in the way we treat other people, right? Um, but, but that would shift. The PCUSA would shift to, we no longer need the sound doctrine, we just need to do mission work, which is feed the poor, build hospitals. Social gospel. Yeah, social gospel. When yeah. was that? When, when, when Nin- was this? this was proposed in 1903. Okay. Um, is, is some of their doctrine on the Holy Spirit that they made heretical? Charismatic. They were, going in, they were going in a charismatic direction. You know, remember the context 1903, shortly after the Second Great Awakening. And so a lot of the Second Great Awakening had an influence on the Peace USA. I believe this is what propelled liberalism in the, in the peace USA, was leaving the importance of the confessions. Mm-hmm. And that started back in the first great awakening. It sounds like they were kind of slipping away from the sovereignty of God, the importance of the sovereignty of God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Doctrinally. Yes. Doctrinally. And that's what made them question the confession and catechism. Oh, yeah. Um, because it's clear in what we teach. So, yeah, so that's just a little bit of history. I didn't want to spend too much time on it. Um, there are many great resources on the history of the confessions, even leading down to our day. Uh, like I said, I've recommended books by Daryl Hart on the OPC, um, books by Fesco, 
He's done great things on why we need creeds and confessions, um, not just uh, want or benefit from, but why we need them. And uh, Carl Truman is both a creedal imperative, and he would argue throughout the book, uh, it is the imperative right, of a church to have a confession. It is, like I said, the one-two step, right? You, you have a church, um, subscribe to a confession. That's, we see that pattern. Because, you know, most people think of Christianity as you come to church and then the one-two step is church, then lifestyle, right? Doing good deeds and doing good in the community. But they forget that doctrine is the lifestyle as well. Christianity is not just a lifestyle, it's also a doctrine. One of the famous words that Machen said. So it has, you can't separate knowledge from our practice, right? Can't separate it. The reason why we, we practice anything is because we're seeking to grow in our knowledge. Um, engaging the intellect about God is a form of worship. It's worship. Your theology results in doxology. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And the more good your theology is, the better your doxology will be. Yep. And uh, that's, again, in Truman's book, he gets into that. And I think I'll get into that, too. Hopefully, we'll get to that. Um, what is the confession of faith and catechisms? And why do, we, why do Christians need them? I decided to go with the book, uh, booklet that I've been getting into uh, in, during a prayer meeting. Yeah. Why Christians need confessions, I recommend you read through it. Very small, very easy to read, um, very easy to digest. Um, he has seven points here. But why we subscribe, it, it is a summary of the system of doctrine found in the Holy Scriptures. The confession of faith is broken up into topics, and the catechisms are in question form that follow a similar order to the confession. Often the comment is, we add to the Bible by subscribing. Uh, no, we're not adding to the Bible. We're subscribing, adhering to a system of doctrine that we say, yes, this is what the Bible teaches. So we're just saying, giving an amen to what is written in the confession and catechisms. The confession and catechisms only interpret what the scriptures teach. And in ours, in our confession, the thick black book that the OPC has provided, we have proof text that support the doctrinal um, statements that we have made within, those, within the confession and catechisms. Uh, the Christian world is not divided between those who have creeds and confessions and those who just have a Bible. It, it is actually divided between those who have creeds and confessions and write them down in a public form, open to public scrutiny and correction, and those who have them and do not write them down. He is saying everybody subscribes to a confession or, or catechism. We, we, everyone has a doctrinal statement. You have something you believe about the Bible. Even if you don't write them down. And the reason is simple. Every church and indeed every Christian believes the Bible means something. And what it thinks the Bible means is its creed and confession. Whether it chooses to write it down or not. You have one. Uh, you have churches who have just a statement of faith, which is like a one-page thing. They wrote it down because that's the natural implication of being a Christian. You've got to tell us what you believe. If you can't say what you believe, that's a big problem. Right? What did Paul say? You know, we're not going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That's why the church has teachers. 
That's Ephesians 4, right? To teach us and to make sure we're not being tossed around to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And part of that teaching was to write down confessions and catechisms. There's something right about why they don't want to subscribe. It's because they are rightly fearing or allowing unbiblical traditions or ideas to impact the substance of what the church believes. But he would turn around on them and says, I believe that which they want to project the unique status of scripture is actually best protected through explicit confessional documents. Because the confessions tell us what the scriptures are, right? They are divine. We're not, we're not moving on that position. Why? Because scripture says so. And he says, and somewhat ironically, it is those who do not express their confession in the form of a written document who are in danger of elevating their tradition above scripture in such a way that it can never be controlled by the latter. Right? Me and my Bible, I don't need anybody to tell me what it says. I already have it. Think of all the crazy interpretations that are out there of the scripture. I mean, just from person to person. I've met people in in sound churches who believe something totally different about the Holy Spirit, for instance, or about the church, or about any given topic, even God. Right? There are people who believe God changes. If a church has a document that says it is dispensational in eschatology, then we all know where such a church stands, right? On an issue of the end times, and we can do the Berean thing and test the position by scripture to see if it is so. The church that tells you simply that its position on the end times is the same one as taught in the Bible appears to be telling you everything, but is actually telling you nothing at all, right? Oh yeah, we just teach what the Bible says. But there are so many people saying different things, right? Um, such as eschatology, dispensationalism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. Where does your church stand on this? Because doctrinal difference does become an issue. In short, creeds and confessions connected to a biblical church polity are vital part of maintaining a healthy New Testament church life. It's for the health of the church, right? That's part of, uh, you know, the elders' role is to guard and keep both the scripture, the confessions, and catechisms in order to guard the unity and purity of the church. And so he lists seven reasons why we need confessions. First, confessions delimit church power. I preached on this today, right? The church has no authority overstepping our boundaries into things that are left free. What color tie you should wear, right? What, what, What color dress you should wear. Now, you know, now, inappropriate dress, you're not going to walk in naked, right? Um, that's, that's actually unlawful as well as <laughs> inappropriate. Uh, so, uh, things like that, yes. But, and I, I want to be careful with the drinking of alcohol because there are folks who have addictions. But if you drink a beer, you know, watching a game, something like that, I have no authority to overstep my bounds. I'm not going to call you an alcoholic. But if it becomes a... a alcoholic problem, if it's uh, indulging in it, if it is alcoholism, that's a different story. That's when it becomes sin. That's when it, uh, it's a problem to your spiritual life and it is destructive. Dancing, again, the type of dancing we must, you know, 
qualify there. You know. Theater, movies, um, we're not here to lord our authority over you. Uh, we're here as servants. So the confessions delimit that church authority. Mere opinion is not enough right, to conduct church discipline. We may have opinions on all sorts of things that people do. But opinion is not enough. Also, uh, confessions offer succinct summary, summaries. That means uh, brief. Brief summary. <laughs> You're looking at the confession. It's not that brief. But it, it is brief. I mean, compared to the whole of Scripture. Uh, people don't have time to go looking, right, for all of the proof texts. To say, see, this is where the Bible says that God is a trinity. I mean, there's so much in there. Um, uh, to go looking for. So, so confessions serve us that we have a book. So, yeah, it, it says this. And here are the texts right here that, that tell us where we can find it. That God is a trinity. That's just one example. I mean, there's a plethora of examples. He even says that there's more theological punch per page than anything other than the Bible itself in the Confession and Catechism. We even have small pocket-sized versions of the catechism, the shorter catechism, that we could carry along with us, and it has the proof text in them. Um, now, the larger catechism goes into more depth. In our Apostles' Creed, where it says, he descended into hell. That was brought up into question. The writers of the Confessions and Catechisms wrote them not only on the foundation of Scripture, but on the early creed, such as the Apostles' Creed. So they would have written the confessions based on their understanding of what the Apostles' Creed says, such as he descended into hell. Uh, the larger catechism, question 50, answers that question, which I should have known when answering. Instead, I went into this big thing, of, you know, going into all of my systematic theology. I'm looking through the Bible. I'm saying, yeah, this is where it says it here. This is where it says it here. And I did what I'm over here recommending you not to do. Just go to the confession and look it up. So, question 50 asks, Wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his, in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. So there, taking right from the Apostles' Creed, they didn't work separated from it. They didn't try to, again, this would prove, they didn't try to separate themselves from the early church. They worked with it. Now, what they meant by it is not what we mean by hell today. It meant that he was in the tomb for three days um, and, and experienced death. He experienced death. He was in Sheol. Right? That's what we believe. And so the Puritans built on that tradition. Also, thirdly, Confessions allow for appropriate discrimination between office bearers and members. This is speaking of doctrinal knowledge. How much lay people are required to know to become members and how much ministers are required to know. But he says that Romans 10 indicates that to become a member of the church, the bar should be set lower. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now there is doctrinal knowledge needed to confess that. Like what does it mean for him to be Lord? There needs to be a certain level of doctrinal knowledge on your part to become a member. But it's not to the extent of ministers of every, uh, every aspect of the confessions. 
there's a difference between the degree of knowledge an office bearer has and that of a new member. But the confessions not only distinguish, they also serve as a roadmap or an aspirational framework that gives substance and structure to its growth. So it's not that members should stay at a low bar, right? It also gives them a direction to go in as far as their knowledge. I would never say, yeah, it's okay to be a lay member and just stay static, not learn anything. Can I say something? One thing I love about the Orthodox Presbyterian denomination is the scholarly approach to the gospel. They dig deep. And you're a scholar, we're the student, and we're to grow. Yeah. That's kind of what you're talking about there. Yeah, we're to grow, yeah. Nobody is uh, uh, required to be there, but that's what I want to do. And, you know, that's, that's my desire. Is not to, you know, a lot of folks think of preaching today as you've got to reach them where they are, but they forget the element of bringing them up mm-hmm. rather than leaving them where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I'm going to reach you where you are, but I'm, my intent is to bring you up. You know, there are churches that don't talk about doctrine at all because they want the church to be welcoming and loving. And to me, it's unwelcoming and it's unloving to leave people where they are and not guide them, give them a, a goal. To reach to. As we see in, in the scriptures, there should be growth in maturity. And one aspect in maturity is growing in doctrinal knowledge. Peter says to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Paul expected us to grow in faith, in speech, in knowledge. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 7. Grace and knowledge go hand in hand, Right? So the confessions can be used as a tool to grow in that knowledge and it makes the pastor's job much easier. The church with no confession and with only the most minimal doctrinal statements has the disadvantage of not being able to set before the congregation what a mature Christian's theology should be. This is where the Christian should be. This is where we want you to be. This is where, where we're growing as a church to be. And it's really hard to get there or if people oppose it. And also confessions highlight that which is of importance. As I've gone through before, Christian liberty, and we just discussed it so I don't have to speak of it too much, personal convictions and preferences, these things the church nor Christians should bind people to. Um, People have strong convictions about schooling, for instance. Shouldn't bind folks to it as a matter of law, as a matter of salvation. What the confessions do, it highlights that which is, you know, every church should be confessing. And those things that are indifferent, you know, when preference becomes precept, we will eventually cross the line into legalism. As we, we learned before what it means to be a hyphenated church, I mentioned it earlier, the family-centered church, the, the homeschooling church, the this or that church, uh, we want to avoid those things. If you want to know whether something is a preference or a precept, read the confessions. Right? They highlight all of those things which are important for our body as a church and the OPC. You know, we're never going to try to con- uh, convince you to vote for a certain candidate, for instance, get into politics. We're not going to do that. That's not our place. That's your personal choice, your personal conviction. You should weigh it out. Right? Who's a better person? But again, people have many, many opinions on that.
uh, we will not be binding young people, right, to either dating or courtship. Yep, I Jesse. Have a Yeah. Well, no, I, as I've said before, I'll speak to the issues, but I still won't tell you who to vote for because I don't believe that's the solution yeah. to begin with. Um, to begin with, whoever you vote for, that's, that's fine. If it's actually going to solve the problem, that's another question. Um, people vote for people for different reasons. And we know how, you know, for instance, journalists are who um, paint a picture of the candidate. All the information we get of a certain candidate or whatever politician, we're getting through bias. We're not get, even those people who say, oh, we're unbiased. No, you're biased. You are biased. I mean, everybody's biased in that sense. And you're going to paint a certain picture. The last thing I'm going to do is tell somebody who to vote for or what party to belong to because they have not served the purpose that we serve, right? The spiritual, yeah, everything belongs to Jesus. We know that, but he works differently with the secular world than he does with the church. Yeah, I don't know, I guess it's just how you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and the problem is when the church is trying to make society look like the church. We run into a lot of problems uh, when we do that. We call sin for what it is. The promises of the keys of the kingdom is given to the church, not to not to Caesar, not to Herod. The keys are given to the elders and the pastors, right? And so it is our duty to preach on the, the sin of adultery, the sin of murder with, within and without the womb, right? It's not limited. Um, you know, all those issues that are cultural, but really they're rooted in sin. So we get to the sin, then we give the gospel. Because the gospel is what transforms lives, transforms the hearts of people, which will make them make different decisions. Just debating people in public, yeah, that's good, but if the gospel is not there, if the, if the purpose of the debate is not to bring the gospel to bear on that person's sin, which is not just abortion, mind you. Right? So, someone who's doing, committing abortion... Their problem is not just abortion. They have all the... It's every sin, right? You break one law, you broke them all. And the same goes for us. Okay, so we're highlighting that which is of importance. Be careful that we don't become the hyphenated church. And the, the discussions and even some of the societal solutions that we may think are better, not to bind people to. And so, <clears throat> that was the fourth point. Fifthly, Confessions relativize the present and connect us to the past. He is saying here, Christianity stands on ground that has been laid for us by many brothers and sisters who have gone before us. Right? We live in an ahistorical and arrogant age, don't we? Um, and if you want to look at conservative or liberal, whatever you want to label people, 
it's on both sides of the spectrum where people don't care about history, right? Don't care. So, society, people in society are historical, but Christianity is rooted in her history, right? God's historical actions in the Old Testament led to Christ. His historical ac- actions in the Old Testament reveal Christ for Israel so that they would remember her history in order to point out and say, yes, he's the Messiah. Did they? No. But that was the purpose, right? That was the purpose. There was a history leading up to him that was meant to remind Israel so that they would recognize the Messiah and recognize their God. And this message of historical actions by God is preserved and proclaimed by the church throughout the ages. When we preach Christ and the Old Testament acts of God, we're preaching history. Right? When I preach Jesus, I'm preaching history. What has happened and what it means for you now. The creeds and confessions is one intentional, intentional means of connecting ourselves to the past, identifying the church, identifying ourselves with the church of previous generations and seeing our own significance today in that entire history, right? The entire story of the church. We're connected to our brothers and sisters of the past, right? When we're taken up into glory, we will be with our brothers and sisters of the past. What glorious truth that is. And to say, well, I don't want to really hear what they had to say, um, really goes against what God has been doing throughout history. The claim, no creed but the Bible, is a reflection of the spirit of the age and the modern anti-historical triumphalism that we now see all around us. Right? And you think of evangelicalism in the U.S. and how they use the Bible to fight modernism. But they are following the practices of modernism by rejecting creeds and confessions. Uh, so don't be a victim of Modernism, even conservative modernism, those who are rejecting confessions and creeds for the sake of Bible only. Confessions also reflect the substance of our worship. He says here, when I teach my course on the ancient church, which I've taken with him, I always emphasize that the dynamic of early Trinitarian and Christological debates is doxological. Like you said, Linda, theology leads to doxology and inextricably connected to Christian worship. Put simply, the early church's cry of worship, Jesus is Lord, and the conjunction of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the baptismal formula points forward toward a foundation of deep theology and the fact that theology is worship. Confessions are the prerequisites of vibrant and thoughtful worship, the things that make sense of what we do as Christians. It's a prereq. You know, knowing who God is in himself. Just reading the first few questions of the, uh, the catechism is like, wow, we have an awesome God. We should stand in awe and reverence after reading what these men have drawn from the scripture and teaching the church of what, it, what the scripture says about God. It's, it's amazing. And it should lead to a vibrant worship. 
This confessional function is likely to become more obviously important in the years to come, he says, as other religions collide with Christianity, and especially as some of those religions use the same kind of biblical vocabulary that we use, it is going to be more and more crucial that we understand not only what words to use, but also what those words actually mean. Your friendly Mormon neighbor might well agree with you that Jesus is Lord, but he's not going to believe the same thing as we do, is what that means. What do you mean that Jesus is Lord? Right? They mean he's only Lord over this planet. Not all of creation, as we do. They don't mean he is actually God. They mean he's a creation and God set him up as a Lord. Big difference. Big difference. He may even sing some of the same hymns. Mormons sing some of the same hymns. Some of the... Sometimes when I'm looking for a tune, I'll look up a tune of a hymn, and I notice I'm listening to the I'm like, they sing beautifully. Oh, it's a Mormon choir. Whoa. Did not see that coming. But they're singing the same hymns. But there must be a distinction. But good confessions enable you to do that with greater ease than anything else, and that is to distinguish right, between false teaching and true sound teaching. And it brings that vibrancy back to our worship, that we are worshiping the one true God. The seventh point, and I'll wrap it up here, hopefully. Confessions fulfill a vital part of Paul's plan for the post-apostolic church. As Paul wrote from prison to his protege, Timothy, his mind was focused on how the church was to manage once he and the other apostles had passed from the scene. His answer had two components. A structure in which the governance of the church was put in the hands of ordinary but faithful man, men in a form of sound words. Not only did he set up church government, but he wanted them to articulate a form of sound words, the doctrine that was necessary for the life of the church. Both of these were necessary. Without structure, the church would have no leadership. Without a form of sound words, she would drift from her theological moorings, losing touch with her past and with other congregations in the present. A form of sound words, a confession, was crucial for maintaining both continuity with the apostles and unity among Christians in the present. And that is what our confessional documents do today. They bind us to faithful brothers and sisters in the past and with the same in the present. The documents unite more than they divide, actually. The cry, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, has a a pious and biblical ring to it, yet we should not be ashamed of being confessional Christians, for confessions enable us to maintain certain biblical priorities. We should give thanks for this, even as we try to show non-confessional brothers and sisters a better way of preserving the things that are of value to all Christians. Now, going back, I do not re- we do not require lay people to subscribe fully to the confession and catechisms. That is reserved to the ministers. If you can answer the five questions with a clear conscience, then you, you can become a member. But, question five. 
if you look back to question five, do you promise to participate faithfully in the church's worship and service, to submit in the Lord to its government, and to heed its discipline, even in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life? Though we don't ask you to subscribe fully, but we want you to be aware of what we teach. And it's found in the confessions and catechisms. This is what we teach. This is what I preach every week. Um, you know, it just flows out of what we believe the Bible says. When you vow to submit to its government, what's part of that governing, how we govern, like I've said before, 95% of our, our work as pastors and elders is to teach. So you're submitting to our teaching and we teach the Westminster Confession and Catechism. So in a way, you're, you are subscribing. If you don't uh, agree with a point, the Confession or Catechisms, in that vow you're, you're saying, yeah, though I don't agree on this minor issue, I have vowed to keep my silence and not cause problems in the church. Not cause division. So that's why it's important to know the Confessions, Catechisms, of the OPC, and it's good to know, I'll get to it, the Book of Church Order. We, we teach it, you know, the elders are bound to it by vow, the pastors are bound to it by vow, and so really important for you to look through it and say, okay, is there anything here in my understanding of the Bible that's really going to cause problems for me in the future? Uh, one question that is asked of men when seeking ordination, when I was seeking ordination, they asked me the question, do you subscribe to the confession and catechisms insofar they are biblical or because they are biblical? What do you think the right answer is? Because they are biblical. You're going to be ordained in the OPC. Ministers are required to subscribe. And once you say insofar, you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be ordained here, but I don't really believe everything you believe. Right? Not necessarily. I'm going to leave it up to my own discretion and say, okay, when I come across an unbiblical teaching in the Confession and Catechisms, I'm just not going to teach that. Insofar as saying that you are going to set yourself up as judge over the Confession and pick and choose and teach that which you think is biblical and the unbiblical, like I said, you, you, you leave it up. You should have done your study before you, you were seeking ordination in the OPC. Study it, you know, study the scriptures, study the confession. Make sure you subscribe to it before you become ordained, right? Because that was the problem in the PCUSA. Folks were saying, no, but we're not holding to strong subscription anymore. And where did they go? It was a snowball effect. Not going to get into the Book of Church order, but I recommend everybody to go through it. Directory of Public Worship we have in here, the form of church government. And if you go through it, it's pretty much, it's a reflection of what they established back in the 1640s. Book of Discipline. It's good to know the Book of Discipline as a member. Know the processes, uh, how to make appeals if you have a problem with the session or whatever it is. Go through it because there is a process. A way of doing things that's orderly and we want to keep it orderly. And it's all derivative from the scripture. I mean, the reasoning for a Book of Church Order comes from Acts 15. Paul calls for orderly worship and acceptable and reverent worship in Hebrews chapter 12, 28. I recommend all members to know the Book of Church Order just as you would know your rights as a citizen of the United States of America. To know your rights as a member of a church. And we will try to leave
primary issues primary, secondary issues secondary, right? Not that the secondary issues are not important, such as baptism. We still hold that baptism is important, even though it's a secondary issue in our fellowship. I've used the illustration. My wife is primary. My kids are secondary. Does that mean my kids are not important? No. They're still more important than everybody else in the world.